Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. Okay, well, this is the Families and Faith podcast. I'm Dave Dollahite. I'm Lauren Marks. Good to be with you. And this is our third podcast. We are on January 7th, 2021, and we're talking about a book that we have done recently called Strengths in Diverse Families of Faith, Understanding Religious Differences. And uh, it's an interesting book. We talked about the origins of the book in our last podcast, and the bulk of the chapters in the book are interesting focused on various faith communities. This particular podcast today, we're going to talk about chapter two in the book, which is a kind of a conceptual chapter about a number of interesting issues in the sociology of religion, in religious studies, in family theory, where we talk about some kind of high-level ideas. And uh, the lead author of this chapter was a friend of ours named Greg Worm. He's, uh, he was a master's student here at BYU while he took the class on religions and families. And when he wrote this chapter, he's now a doctoral student at University of Notre Dame, and he works with uh, our friend and colleague Christian Smith. This particular podcast, we will talk about ideas from that chapter, most of which Greg brought to the table from his background in sociology. Lauren and I are family studies professors, and uh, you know we've had certainly some background in sociology, some background in psychology, but Greg is a full-fledged sociologist, and within sociology, his main emphasis is theory. And uh, while he was here at Brigham Young University, BYU, he worked with our friend and colleague, Stan Knapp, who's one of the leading scholars in family theory. And so Greg Worm, our co-author in this chapter, brought some really cool ideas and pretty high-level, broad ideas to the table for this uh, chapter. And so we're going to spend a little bit longer than usual talking about these ideas and go into a little bit more depth than will be typical of the, you know, the other chapters will be focused more on, uh, for example, Muslim families or Jewish families or Asian Christian families or Black families or Latter-day Saint families, where we'll do quite a bit of reading from quotations. We, we have about uh, 12,000 pages of interview uh, transcripts, which include a lot of really cool direct quotations from those folks that we interviewed. So most of the rest of these podcasts will have quite a bit more of cool direct information from folks. This one, we're going to talk more about theory and sociology of religion. So I mentioned Christian Smith, who's a professor at Notre Dame that Greg is currently working with. Uh, Christian Smith has authored a number of books, including a couple of really cool ones, uh, one, Soul Searching, uh, about religiosity among American teenagers, and another one, Souls in Transition, uh, which followed those same teenagers into their emerging adulthood, you know, into their basically 20s, and focused on their religious practices and beliefs in their 20s. So we'd like to start today's podcast by reading a paragraph from our chapter that is quoting Christian Smith talking about religion and and adolescence. So Christian Smith said, 
generic resources or social networks or organizational capacities or memberships that just so happen to be found in religious groups in particular cases. In other words, religion can provide adolescents with a number of resources that can be helpful to them. But uh, Greg goes on to argue that each religion's particular content, its specific beliefs and expectations, are inseparably linked to the outcomes that they produce. In other words, he's saying that while we can and we do talk about religion in general, and there's some value in talking about what religion broadly might do to, to benefit or harm people, it's really important that we talk about specifics, the very particular beliefs, particular practices, particular ways of being religious. If we don't do that, if we only talk about sort of religion in generic terms and broad terms, and, and the other issue that we'll talk about a bit today is uh, the whole idea of reducing religion to psychology or reducing religion to, to sociological explanation. And Christian Smith argues that if you don't talk about religion specifically as a religion and be willing to treat religion in a way that's distinct from other fields, then Smith says you would, quote, completely dissolve the sociology of religion as a distinctive field and divide up its component parts into other fields of culture, organizations, race and ethnicity, collective behavior and social movements and so forth. So we do follow Christian Smith in suggesting that we need to preserve and even enhance the explanatory power of religion. In our own work, as we've studied religion and family, uh, we've tried to identify the religious and relational processes at work at what we uh, call the nexus of religion and family life. Uh, we've emphasized religious beliefs, religious practices, uh, religious communities, experiences that seem to make a difference in strengthening marriages and parenting and, and family life. Harkening back to Christian Smith's call for specifics, some of the specific examples that we've encountered include things like, at a marital level, with marriage, the importance of a shared vision across religions, across races, both women and men have told us that uh, shared vision in marriage has been tremendously important to them. Having a shared concept of what their marriage should be, what they're working toward, Interestingly, about 10% of those that we've sampled have also been married previously. They're in remarriages, and many of them have kind of compared and contrasted a previous marriage that didn't make it to the finish line, and in many cases, which did not involve a shared family vision, with a long-term remarriage where they had that going for them. Uh, we've also done, at the marital level, something that's popped up again and again, are the ideas of forgiveness and, and reconciliation. Dave, what are some things that have struck you that we've learned from women and men that we've interviewed about this, uh, this forgiveness and reconciliation kind of issue? It's interesting that the whole idea of forgiveness, many people think of that as a religious idea, but in fact, it's not just a religious idea, it's a relational idea. And so it comes up in a lot of work. And the whole field of forgiveness studies has now been around for, what, 20 or 30 years or something, where mostly family therapists have looked at the power of forgiveness in helping relationships to heal and to bring reconciliation when there's been conflict or distance. 
And what we have found is that religion really facilitates forgiveness. It's not that forgiveness can't occur without religion. It certainly can, and it certainly does. But it is the case that religion seems to encourage people to forgive. You know, religious scripture and religious teaching often emphasize the importance of forgiveness, and that it's a commandment to forgive. So religious people have a little bit of a, maybe an extra nudge. A lot of our folks talked about being in a religious service, hearing a sermon, or having a text read, or singing a, a sacred hymn that talks about forgiveness, that that might have encouraged them to forgive their spouse. Prayer has been mentioned quite a bit by our own folks that we interviewed, as well as you know other studies about forgiveness show that prayer helps people either separate prayer where you know they're, they're upset at each other and they pray on their own to ask to be you know made more humble or to be have their heart softened or maybe sometimes they actually pray together as a couple either in the midst of a conflict or more often you know before or after a conflict uh, is occurring and so folks have discussed the power of feeling that God actually can send the Spirit, send grace, send healing, a spirit of peace, comfort. Again, it's not the case that religion is required for forgiveness to occur, but it is the case that religion seems to help a lot of people in the very difficult process of forgiving their spouse. I'm reminded of a quote we've drawn on from time to time from a 20th century journalist, Robert Quillen, where he says, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. A really nice statement reminding us that forgiveness and reconciliation, apologizing, those aren't the backup plan. Those, those are the plan. You know, that's, that's the way to get marriage. With that said, we've learned some specific things across faiths across individuals about marriage. In the parenting realm, a couple of things that have really stuck out from our participants' comments include the importance of balancing firmness and flexibility, as well as balancing what we call legacy with agency. What are some of the the more important things that have jumped out at you in terms of firmness and, and flexibility? Dave, maybe you can talk us through that a little bit. I mean, most of the parents we've interviewed and this would include us, I, I assume, as well as parents, have a strong desire to see their, their children lead healthy relational lives, but many also want to see their, their children remain in the faith that they themselves hold dear. But it uh, looks like that only holds true about 50% of the time in, in recent national data. So how do we handle that? Yeah, that's one of those really challenging and really important questions, because highly religious people who are parents do tend to want to pass that faith, that that legacy onto their children. For most people that are highly religious, they love God, they love their faith, they love the traditions and the culture, they love their religion, and they love their children above all people. And so naturally, they want to share the thing they love most with the people they love most. And that's a good thing. And the research is clear that most people do try to pass along their, their faith to their children. Most children do report that their parents were the most influential people in their lives in terms of their own religious socialization. But as you said, nowadays in America, about half of people end up choosing a faith other than what their parents raised them in. And so we've done a little bit of work on 
what might be going on there. And, and another statistic that's uh, pretty interesting, a recent Pew study done a couple of years ago showed that 78% of people who identify as nuns, as having no religion, almost four out of five of them say that they were raised in a religious home. And so it's not that they didn't have the option to learn about faith. Most of them did. It's not to say that 80% of people raised in a religious home decide not to be religious. It's saying that of those who identified as being not religious, unaffiliated, the word that sociologists use is religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, meaning that they've clicked the box that says no religion, or when asked about religion, they say none. And so we have done some uh, looking into our interviews to see what might be going on. And one of the things we learned is that parents who are so eager to share their faith with their children, to pass it along, that they're too strict. They're too, what we call religious firmness. They're maybe minimizing uh, their children's freedom and maximizing requirements to go to religious services or to participate in religious activity. So is it firmness that's bad or rigidity? It's rigidity. What fir firmness on steroids or extreme firmness or, or uh, unhealthy firmness, right. So religious firmness is a good thing, and religious flexibility is a good thing. And when those two things are combined, that's the ideal. Because if you're only you know, firm but never flexible, that's a problem. If you're totally flexible but never firm, that's a problem. So parents who find a way to balance those two things in healthy ways tend to do the best. So I get a call literally this morning before doing our podcast from a mother in her 60s. Uh, devout in her faith, saying, I read an article that you two, Dave and Lauren, wrote in a newspaper a while back, and I resonated. I've got six children, three are out of the faith. I desperately want for them to be involved, but three are not, three are. And I, I said to her, I don't mean to be flippant. Many of us who are parents and care deeply about faith have had the same experience. It happens. One child choose to remain, one child to remain choose to exit, but you're right about the national average. Uh, one stays, one goes. I said, uh, it's a long race. And I have shared with several parents who have come to me very heartfelt with this issue, this simple sports metaphor that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that in my 50 years of experience almost now, that uh, what we might call scripturally love unfeigned or charity, uh, loving someone deeply. It doesn't win today. It doesn't win tomorrow. It doesn't always win next year. But over the long run, the charity tends to win. And that it's important to take a long view, a tolerant view, a warm view of our children and, and loved ones that walk a different path for us whether it's for a while or permanently. So I think that this issue touches on the heart of the legacy versus agency issue that's popped up in many of the interviews with mothers and fathers. And it is a specific issue. We're so fortunate in getting to do these in-depth interviews, qualitative interviews. A lot of social science is done with filling in bubbles or checking boxes online, and we can learn important things that way. But we have the advantage of being able to throw a question out at a moment's notice, to dig deeper. And we have dug deep with some of these issues of legacy 
the desire to see your children continue in your legacy of faith versus agency, their choice to opt out. Any thoughts there on things we've learned from those we've chatted with or more close to home? Yeah, legacy is sort of focused on the parents. You know, I want to share my faith with my child. I want my child to be another link in the generational chain. Many of our Jewish friends who we interviewed talked about not wanting to be the weak link in a thousand years chain of devotion being passed down from parents to children. And so, you know, legacy is a powerful thing. And most human beings feel some sense of gratitude and appreciation to their parents. Of course, some people were raised in horrible situations with neglectful or abusive parents, and and they don't feel much appreciation. But most people raised in in a relatively functional, relatively healthy, happy family feel deep appreciation to their parents. This other idea of agency, so so legacy is about continuing. It's about uh, religious continuity across generations. Agency is about choice. It's about people doing what they do for their own reasons, not because they feel pressure from history or from parents or from a faith tradition. It's because they have experienced life. They've made choices. They personally find that they have value and meaning from being uh, a religiously involved person. And so they want to continue their faith for their own reasons. And so in any family situation where you've got, obviously we're talking about intergenerational, so parents and children, you know, when it's when it's two married people, then they are each adults and they each have their own background, their own preferences, their own choices. But the minute you bring in children, and now it's a you know a sort of a power structure where you got parents and children, there's going to be some issues, some tensions around what parents expect of children and what children prefer to do themselves. And so this whole issue is profound. It's uh, very sensitive. It's very complex. And maybe we'll do a, an entire podcast down the road about this whole issue and we'll, you know, we'll draw from some of the studies that we've done. We'll, we'll go into this in a lot more detail. Sure. Tricky to balance familial responsibilities with individual level rights and, and so forth. Yeah, it is very complex. In terms of specificity, you mentioned Christian Smith saying it's wonderful to get into the details of faith. We've talked about marriage, some specifics there, of shared vision, forgiveness, reconciliation. We've talked about parenting, both balancing firmness and flexibility, and also legacy with agency. One of the most important whole family level specifics that we've noted, again, across faith, across region of the country, across race, and one raised by women, men, and youth as well, is the power of ritual in family life and family relationships. The power of ritual is something that's been looked at for decades in anthropology, Our colleague, Barbara Feast, has done wonderful work on it, emphasizing families. What are some of the things that struck you most as we've explored ritual? We've dug deep. I think, for example, uh, the Ramadan fast for some of the Muslim friends that we've interviewed. Shabbat for Jewish families. Family home evening for Latter-day Saint families. 
what are some of the, the benefits or processes that you've learned most about as we've gone through our interview? Before I respond, I'm going to flip it back to you and say you've been the one that's let out on most of our articles and chapters that are focused on ritual. So I think you're the expert here. <laughs> and so I'm going to ask you to share what you have found to be most meaningful, valuable, helpful, important, and then I'll chirp in as well. Sure. I think for the two of us, many times we're thinking about emerging adults. That's the group. Those that are getting ready to move into, they're in the mate selection process. They're looking to build their own families. Many of those who may be listening are in that mindset now. We speak with, in our offices, in our classes, interact with emerging adults. And I think one of the things that's, that struck me most that I'd share with emerging adults is that the families that do rituals, that really engage in them passionately, also tell you it's a pain. It's, it's a struggle. It's hard. It's not some flawless, effortless kind of phenomenon. You're constantly bumping against cultural conflicts, against scheduling conflicts. And it's something that you have to prioritize and want. And then, in fact, this pause of meaning, this effort to be still, to be together in a really fast-paced, frenetic kind of culture that swirls around us. It's hard. It's hard to pull it off. But when you do, that in fact, when your children see that you're making this effort, that it's not effortless, that it's not flawless, that it doesn't always go smoothly and well, that you're sending a potent meta-message that even though this is hard, it's so important to be together, to focus on our faith, to focus on each other, to focus on the sacred, to focus on our God, that everything else can wait for a while. Thank you very much. That everything can wait and that there's meaning in that effort for many of these families. Again, that that holds across the different faiths, the different expressions of ritual. So, yeah. Lauren, you're, you're in that stage of life where you still have children at home. My wife and I are a little older and, and uh, we're empty nesters. And so we don't have those sorts of daily or weekly religious rituals. I bet people would love to hear how you and your wife do that ritual, the religious ritual, in a way that sort of accomplishes some of those things you've been talking about. How do you go about having it be regular but not rigid? How do you go about emphasizing its importance without you know, minimizing other important things in your family? How do you and Sandra do this? Thanks for asking. Certainly, we don't have all the questions solved. In some ways, I think that that some of the things that we've learned from families we've interviewed have been helpful. For example, firmness and flexibility. We try to have a family devotional or scripture study each night that includes reading from some sacred text and having a family prayer after that. In terms of firmness and flexibility, we do have an implicit expectation that everybody come. But usually we just ask once. I, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. But we ask once and let the kids know, hey, we'll be starting scripture study in, in a couple minutes. Love to have you. But we don't go and bang on the door a fifth or sixth time and say, get your tail feathers out there. We leave that to them. We typically read a couple verses in rotation. What if somebody's having a really bad day and doesn't want to read? 
that's okay. Hopefully, on the whole, they'll want to read. Sometimes they want to comment. You know, we try to make it not just a straight reading, but throw some dialogic questions. What if they're having a bad day? Everybody has a bad day sometimes. But you hope that over the long haul, there's a balance of that firmness and flexibility. Another finding that we've had from our research, you and you and me, Dave, is that parents talk too much and listen too little. And I've been guilty of that and called on it by my kids. I remember during a, a study a while back, I said, you know, sometimes we have great discussions and sometimes we don't have great discussions. And you guys don't ask the kind of thought provoking questions that make our best studies what they are. Why don't you, why don't you ask great questions every time? And one of them said, because dad, sometimes you ramble on forever when we ask a question. So I, I should know better. I should know better. And so rotating the person who's not necessarily the teacher, but the discussion leader is another thing that we found very helpful. It mixes things up, different styles, different strengths, different weaknesses. But uh, I think that the one core issue is that it's, as our dear friend and colleague Wes Burr has said, it may be as much about the process, ritual, the, the power of ritual. It may be as much about how in the spirit in which you gather your family and bring them together for the ritual as it is about the ritual itself. So what about you, Dave, on, on a ritual note? If you were trying to give some pointers, things that have been helpful for you and, and your better half, Mary, what are some things that have worked well or otherwise that you throw out for our listeners? I think uh, by way of balancing religious firmness and religious flexibility. So in our case, you know, when we had all of our kids at home, we have seven kids, so it was a big group, plus my father lived with us for the last 17 years of his life. So we had 10 people around the table, you know, for dinner and such and for family home evening. And uh, obviously you got lots of different ages and, and interest level and energy level and personalities and feeling good or not feeling good or feeling preoccupied with homework or not and preoccupied and wanting to go off and be with friends or not. I mean, you got all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And so we tried various things. We tried uh, morning uh, scripture devotionals. We tried evening you know, right before bed. For different reasons, those two things didn't really work for our family. So the firmness part of it was that we are going to gather as a family and read from our scriptures each day, if possible. Obviously, there are days when that doesn't happen for different reasons, but that that's our intention and that's we're firm about that. But the flexibility part is how and when and where and for how long are we going to do that? In our case, we found that the thing that worked best for us was at dinner time. We're all there typically, half the battle, getting us all there for dinner. But we tried to make it a positive thing. We tried to have enjoyable interactions at dinner. So it was almost always the case that everyone was there. And we found that what worked for us was in between dinner and dessert to take a few minutes and each read one verse from, in our case, it was the Book of Mormon. And we'd have a, an old paperback uh, version of the Book of Mormon that was sitting right by the table. And, you know, right after we finished with dinner, or most people finished with dinner, somebody would grab the book or say, you know, time for scripture. Because the, the, the kind of the rule was, before dessert, we were going to read some scripture. So we would 
each read a verse and pass the book around. So the book made its way around the table. And it took usually five to 10 minutes max, sometimes less than that, sometimes more if the conversation got interesting. And then, you know, once we read the scriptures, we would eat dessert. And when people are eating, you know, uh, when they're full and they're eating nice treats, it's easier to, you know, to talk about things in a, in a positive way. If you're filled with good food, it's easier to be content and patient with others. Anyway, so that was our approach. And uh, we found that once we got into that habit, it was easy to maintain it. The book was right there by the table. Often, one of the kids would remind us, especially the younger kids, you know, teenagers may not be necessarily interested in reminding to do that sort of thing, but younger kids who love ritual, love routine, often are. So that was our approach. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. It's, it's been fun to reflect on some of those specific expressions of faith that we've seen of religious tradition in our data, in our interviews, and, and in our own home. We'll go ahead and, and move back to the chapter on the inner logic of religion. Sociologist Weber and more recently, uh, Roger Friedland, have made an argument that there are these powerful logics or ways of seeing the world that, that each of us hold, and that there's different types of logics. Friedland extends some of Weber's idea to say there is a logic of economics that we might just simply call wealth. There's a logic of politics that we might call power. There's a logic of religion or of God. There is a logic of learning or of science that we might call knowledge. There's a logic of aesthetics uh, that we might call beauty. There's a logic of eroticism or passion, etc. that there are different logics. And depending upon which of these logics we as individuals hold most central, that impacts what our meanings are, what is meaningful to us, why it's meaningful, etc. And in that respect, I think of our favorite Episcopalian priest, David Zoll, who's written a book that we both enjoy, Seculosity, where he, he argues that essentially everybody has a religion. You know, my, my religion may be NFL football or hunting or uh, shopping online, but there's something that makes us who we are. That, uh, that we hold central to our life, to our meaning-making. And going back to Weber for just a minute, he, in fact, makes the argument that our world, the world that we live in, is an arena of warring gods. Really interesting phrase. And that we essentially, in that war, get to choose the god or gods that we worship. Greg, in our chapter, brought in some pretty high-level concepts from sociology, and uh, we'll do our best to discuss those, although they're above and beyond our pay grade in some sense, some deep thoughts. On this inner logics note, Dave, what are some of the most interesting things that struck you as we revisited that chapter in our own personal readings? Yeah, so you just referred to this idea of warring gods, and Many people nowadays might say, well, you know, believing in God is silly, it's naive, it's really not sustainable in an era of science and education. And so more people are saying that they don't believe in God. You referenced the, the book Seculosity. And by the way, you mentioned uh, 
that the author David Zoll is our favorite Episcopal priest. I would beg to differ and say that my uncle, Gene, who became Father Damien, an Episcopal priest, spent his life as an Episcopal priest. I'd have to claim him as my favorite Episcopal priest, although I, I think David Zoll is awesome. Friendly uh, Amendment. Yeah, except. Friendly Amendment. Sure I really uh, loved Uncle Gene. Too. Uncle Gene was awesome. He was the head of the youth group back when I was a kid, and I stopped attending uh, Episcopal church when I was 12. And my uncle, about once a year, would make a trip over to the Dalahite house and try to talk me into coming to be involved with the church group, the youth group. And he would tell me about the activities and how great it was. And, you know, I typically would say, probably sometimes more politely than others, that I wasn't interested in God, wasn't interested in religion, wasn't interested in any church group. I don't know that he ever said things like, we have some really cute girls. That might well have made a difference. I don't recall that he ever said that, but I was certainly in my teen years interested in uh, two forms of religion, the religion of sports and the religion of girls. And I was pretty successful with the religion of sports. I wasn't that successful with the religion of girls, but I worked hard on both. And anyway, so David Zoll's book, Seculosity, very interesting title, Seculosity, he argues that even if a person isn't going to church services, and even if a person would say, I'm not religious, I, I don't believe in God, or maybe they believe in God, but they say, you know, I, I'm not a church person, that he has shown in his book that actually everyone is religious in various ways. Their religion may not be traditional, formal, church, synagogue, mosque type of religion, but they're probably religious about something. And you mentioned, you know, some possibilities. You know, they might be religious about their politics or about their commitment to the environment or their uh, commitment to fly fishing. What's that great movie? A River Runs Through It with the, I think, a Presbyterian uh, minister who teaches his two boys about fly fishing. And for him, yeah, he's a pastor, so he's pretty religious. But fly fishing is also a religion. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so that idea of warring gods that we're all going to be religious in the sense that we're all going to be committed. And we use the phrase, he's not religious about his exercise regimen, or he's religious about you know watching sports on Sundays or whatever. So we use that word religious to mean you know, really committed, really engaged, regular, it's sacred. If you don't do it, it feels like you're losing something. You'll prioritize it, whether it's sports, politics, family, you know, parenting. David Zoll's book is a pretty persuasive case that we are religious. The issue is, where do we point our religiosity? And so the idea of, in our case, we interviewed folks that are fairly religious. Most of the people that we interviewed did report themselves as being fairly religious. Not all. Some called themselves sort of, you know, less religious. And some people said, really? You know, Pastor John recommended us as a really religious family, huh? We don't see ourselves as as that religious, but okay, sure, we'll, we'll talk to you. So yeah, this idea of warring gods is a pretty powerful idea, and it, all of us make choices and and have priorities. And in some ways, the idea of you know what do you worship? You know, we we tend to use worship to do with God or with religious kinds of things, but. Worship really is what do you assign worth to? What do you devote yourself? What do you consider a very high priority that you're going to engage with? And so, yeah, we all worship in some ways, whether God is 
is part of our worship or not is a choice we make where our worship of God in the scheme of money or physical health or Netflix programs or computer games or whatever. And we all make those kinds of choices. Yeah, sure. One of the lines that struck me reading through here, of course, as we make our way through the book and future podcasts, we're going to dive into eight different religious and ethnic communities who all do explicitly worship God in some way, shape, or form, yet they do so in different ways. And as we mentioned in this chapter, even within the same tradition, there are differences. Even within the same family, there are differences in concept and diligence, dedication, approach, so forth. I think Greg wrote this line that, that I think is a fascinating one from the chapter. It says, the question of whether and how religious believers really believe in and act on what they they allegedly believe it is what matters most. It's not just, is there a God or not? The question that fascinates us is, okay, you believe that there is, but do you believe deeply enough that it impacts your actions? And part of what we argue in the chapter is that while social science can't get at everything that is religious in essence, we do fixate and study and delve into beliefs and behaviors in the social science. And we can take a close look at those. I'm, I'm reminded of a similar phrase from the founding father of the psychology of religion, and also a founding father, at least of empirical psychology, William James, for whom we both have profound respect, when he, he said that a God that is perceived as real is real in his effects, end quote. So if I watch you and your belief in the God you worship, that you adore, is deep enough that it it impacts your beliefs, your behaviors, your relationships. As a social scientist, I'm beholden to strive to understand where you are coming from if I'm going to understand the meaning behind those behaviors that, that are easier to see. I think very quickly, for example, of Jewish mothers that we interviewed who have their sadaka box in the kitchen. And constantly with the fine meals they prepared, drop some coins, drop some money in there for the service of the poor. Muslim families who at the close of the month-long Ramadan fast pay a zakat. Of course, as in any faith, it's not everybody, it's the more faithful. But that offering is 2.5% of not the income for that year, but of their net worth. So if you're someone fortunate enough to have a million dollar net worth, that's a $25,000 offering to the poor at the end of that month of Ramadan fasting for some Latter-day Saint families that fast once a month and then offer a fast offering. We have a visible behavior and externally, whether God exists or not, those families in their own way, shape or form believe so deeply in a God, or at least in a religious tradition, that they give in a way that helps the real poor in the real world. And that's that's impressive, I think, to us. 
I'm going to jump in here, Lauren, because I wondered how long it would take. (laughs) And here we are, halfway through our third podcast. I wonder how long it would take before you would bring up the idea that's dear to you, that belief, worship, devotion, commitment, you know, religious involvement for you really comes down to behavior. I'm less focused on that. I'm more of an experience guy. I'm more of sacred experience, spiritual experience that matters. And you're really about action. What do you do? You like to focus on the phrase, put your money where your mouth is. So for you, the fact that religious people pay a zakat, a percentage of their income, pay a tithe, you know, 10% of their income, do action that that is more than just lip service. For you, that's really, really important. Uh, I tend to focus more because of my own religious background, my own experience, and because I'm not nearly as a good behavior as I should be and could be. I tend to focus more on the inner world, on kind of spirituality and communing with God through prayer, through scripture study, experiencing God. And not that you don't also focus on that, but your focus is much more about outward behavior. And that's one of those things that you and I are going to probably, you know, sure. it's not that we clash on, it's that we have sort of a different emphasis on. And so social science is one of those fields where there's an effort to measure. Well, every science has to try to find something meaningful to measure, to observe. And the social sciences have understandably focused on behaviors, on measurable actions. And then there's comparisons made of this group against that group about how much they do certain activities, certain behaviors, certain actions. I have often wished that, you know, and tried to think about how to go about measuring inner experience. And obviously it's much more difficult to measure or sort of comparatively assess people's experience because all of our experiences are unique and they're inner and they affect us in different ways. So most of the research that we've done, we've focused on what people have said about their practices, how often they go to church and how reading scriptures makes a difference for them. More recently, we did a paper on religious experiences, which by the way, was much more difficult for us to get published. Partly because people are like, well, like, the box. show me the show me the numbers. Like, where where's the beef? Uh, this is all just kind of fuzzy wuzzy inner spiritual. And you know, we finally got it published in an online journal called Religions, and it was about what people said about how their religious experiences, their spiritual experiences, affected their relationship. So there did end up being an outward behavioral manifestation. And we're very interested, not only in people's experiences, but the so what, like what difference does that experience make for you? So we both agree that, okay, it's interesting to have people share their spiritual experiences, but it's even more interesting and probably more important to then take the next step and say, so how did that experience affect your life? In other words, so what? So you felt close to God, you felt like God answered a prayer, you felt connected to the cosmos by being in nature. That's, that's awesome, that's great. Can you tell us about how that affects your life? Can you tell us about how that affects your marriage, your family relationships? And so we are interested in that kind of the nexus of religious belief, practice, ritual, 
involvement in community, experience, and family relationships. I jumped in and said my little piece about that. Now I want you to say your piece <laughs> about that because you, you probably have a thought or two you might want to share. I think it's interesting. At the tail end of your comment, it, it just struck me that in some ways, this is an example of just what we're talking about in the chapter, different inner logics. Your tendency is towards beliefs and experiences. My tendency is towards behaviors. Both of us acknowledge the validity of the other's position, but for us personally, I have a hard time getting away from good old Emerson saying your behavior shouts so loudly that I cannot hear your words. And at the same time, I would not argue against the power of belief, the power of experience. And to play ping pong again, you and I have both had the misfortune of knowing individuals who would classify themselves as deeply spiritual and or deeply spiritual who wait deeply spiritual and or deeply religious yeah or, or both uh yet who treated those around them terribly spouses children co co-workers and at that point i'd go over and and remember the words of, of Westboro that it's not just what you believe, but how you live it out that matters most. And yet you might rightly counter, yes, but beliefs and what we believe most, that is what drives our behavior. So we get into a chicken and an egg discussion that's fun to wrestle with. And it's So which is the chicken and which is the egg? Is, yeah. uh, is it the chicken of behaviors and the egg of experience or is it no I'm, I'm kidding yeah. okay so back to the chapter you had some other ideas that you wanted to discuss on on this dive right in yeah we were just bantering a little bit about beliefs versus behavior and we talked early in the podcast about specific manifestations of differing beliefs across religion you threw the uh, show me the money kind of comment. And it's, I guess it's fitting and apropos since I literally used a financial example, three of them to be exact with Sadaqah, Zakat and fast offering. So I have to say guilty as charged. And yet the interesting thing is that the same depth and even the same kind of belief can yield different expressions. And sometimes the differing beliefs still yield similar behaviors. Epigenesis versus equifinality, we, we call that in family systems. But with that said, we... Hold on, you just threw out a couple of really big words. Could, <laughs> could you say a little bit more about what equigenesis, epigenesis and equifinality means? Sure. In short, the two ideas are that, you know, you can have four runners at the starting line of the same race who end up in very different destinations. They don't run for the same finish line. By contrast, you can have four runners begin at four very different points of origin who or, or genesis who end up at the same finish line. And that's true behaviorally, ideologically, uh, in terms of position in life. And, and I think that we see some of that as we study faith. And that's part of the argument of trying to understand eight different religious and ethnic communities 
uh, like we do in this present book. There's a line that I, I like. Again, I think this is from Greg, paraphrasing Friedland. There's a view that posits that the only way to know religion, to know and understand religion in a deep sense, is to know religions, plural, in an array of iterations. That's the end of the quote. And I'd love to have you talk us through how you've seen that play out, Dave. You've, you've been in literally a score of different faiths as a guest worshiper in the homes of an array of, of religious families. And yet you and I began by studying fathers of our own faith. How has that journey influenced and impact you? This, this it, Let me see the phrase here again. The only way to know religion is to know religions in an array of iterations. Yeah, I think we brought in kind of a similarity of languages that if you only know your own language, you don't really know languages. You know how to speak and write usually your own language. Only if you have studied thoroughly another language do you really then understand your own language. There's something about that comparative perspective. And I have... Yeah, to interrupt, my no, parents please. are both fluent in German, have done a couple of voluntary church service missions to Germany at different points in their lives. And I've heard on occasion one or both of them say, you know, this is better in Deutsch. This is better in German. I can't get the right English translation. German does it better. My son is fluent in Spanish. says, Spanish does it better, but you don't know who does it better, so to speak, unless you've got that point of reference. Yeah. In my case, I studied Prebrook Hebrew for a year at Beth David Synagogue in North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, with Cookie Cohen, our wonderful teacher. And, you know, we learned how to read the Hebrew alphabet, which is tricky because it's not you know, Arabic letters. It's a whole different set of characters. And then we learned to read the Hebrew prayer book, the Siddur. And I loved it. I learned a lot. It was a marvelous experience studying with my Jewish friends and a couple of Christian uh, Baptist friends, sweet little old Baptist ladies who uh, wanted to study Hebrew as well. So there are three of us Christians that had never studied Hebrew and about eight or 10 Jewish folks who had studied Hebrew to some extent Actually, there were, now I think about it, there were a couple that were converts to Judaism. I think one from Judaism, or one from Christianity, one from Buddhism, as I recall. And so they hadn't studied, had not studied Hebrew. But most of the folks in the class had studied it as a child, maybe got bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah at age you know, 12 or 13. And then they hadn't really studied it since. So it was a really interesting group of folks and all kinds of interesting conversations about what the Hebrew word means and how it was translated into the you know, Jewish Publication Society version, into the King James version. And because we had different linguistic backgrounds and experiences, we could have a much richer, much more interesting, much more full and nuanced conversation about those ideas. So that's just one small example, and that, that's about language per se. But it's interesting, uh, I teach a class here on uh, at BYU, at Brigham Young University, called Families in World Religions, where we study family life across 
the Abrahamic faiths. And we read books written by members of different faith communities. We watch lots of videos and films about faith communities uh, very different from our own. And I'm pretty passionately positive about each of these faiths. Some of my students would say, you know, that when I'm talking about Judaism, I sound like I wish I were Jewish. When I'm talking about Islam, I sound like I wish I were Muslim. When I talk about Catholicism, I sound like I wish I were Catholic. And there's part of that that is the holy envy idea that we have talked a little bit about in a previous podcast, and we'll talk more about in the future in these podcasts. The idea that, yeah, when you learn about other faiths, when you open your mind, your heart, your life to learning about other faiths, you almost can't help but find things that you love about those faiths, that you envy. You wish that your own faith did more of that. Um, you, you, know, you can't help but feel great respect and admiration for uh, the devotion of our Jewish friends to Shabbat, for the devotion of our Muslim friends to, uh, to daily five times a day prayer, etc. And so I have personally felt more enriched in my own faith, more devoted to my own faith because of the wonderful things I've learned from my friends of other faiths. And I feel like I'm a better Latter-day Saint than I would be if I didn't know about other faiths. So for me, studying other faiths is both enriching and, and edifying and interesting and enjoyable on its own. I just, I enjoy it by, you know, for itself, but it also helps me to be a better member of my own faith community. So you're a better Latter-day Saint, you're telling me, but are you a better world citizen? I hope so. I hope so, too, in my case. Another one of the lines that, that I, I appreciated is, as I went back through and reread the chapter says, when we experience what is different about others, we also discover what is different about ourselves. Moreover, we not only see what is different about others from our perspective, but we see what is different about ourselves from others' perspectives. The recursive process can be both enriching and unsettling. That's the end of the quote, but certainly that's been true, both elements there, that it's enriching. You've touched on that, the wealth, the uplift that you draw from being able to interview, to meet with faithful folks from different traditions, but it is unsettling in some ways. And part of what was unsettling for me was an awareness that they're going back to the beliefs and behaviors issue for a minute. I have a pretty good idea of how I should behave based on the beliefs that I proclaim. But of course, there's a gap between those. But there are some who believe, at least in some ways, differently than me, whom when I've sat in their homes, it seems to me that they're doing a better job of behaving the way I should measure up to my own ideals, even without those beliefs. And it issues a call, an implicit call to repentance without being sanctimonious or self-righteous on their part. It, it issues what we've called in some of our writing, the principle of lived invitation. What about you? Any, anything to add there? Well, you threw out that idea, which is your idea. You were kind to say that we have done, but that principle of lived invitation is really your idea that you uh, believe strongly in. I don't think it was in every one of the chapters of another book that we've done, but I think it permeated the book. 
And, and it is interesting. Uh, I'll just say that my students love that idea. They they write about. I, you know, we, we both have our students write papers uh, about what they've read, and my students really love that idea of the, the principle of lived invitation. And so I'm not the one to talk about that idea. You are the originator and expert and passionate believer and behave behavior um, of that idea. So so would you, Lauren, share with us what do you mean by the principle of lived invitation? Nice try, though, to try to get me to talk about an idea that you originated and that you are super committed to. Uh, that, that, that almost worked. There's still slots on the team. <laughs> I, I've got a place next. I'm going to continue to recruit. But yeah, for, for our listeners, and we did a content check, I think, of a previous book. And I think it does occur between 13 and 17 times in the book. You know, it not only was the the horse killed, it was kicked several times after it was dead. But the principle of lived invitation is our behavior is permission to others to behave similarly. But it is more than that. It is an invitation to do so. And that is something I, I believe in quite strongly. And of course, it has both negative and positive connotations. Whatever we do is bigger than us, that, that it ripples. It, it's not a not necessarily a law, but I think it is a, a demonstrable tendency. And it's, you know, one I, I would invite to our listeners to reflect on. Well, okay, I'd like you to say a little bit more. So you say our behavior is not just an invitation. Not just permission. Not just permission to follow or to, uh, what's the word you use, to imitate? Our behavior is permission to others to behave similarly, but it is more than that as an invitation to do so. So you're saying that implicitly, whenever we act in a certain way, whenever we do certain things, that we are not only kind of giving permission to others, our family, friends, children, students, coworkers, we're not only giving permission to other people to act like that, but we're actually inviting them to act because you're saying that our actions are so powerful that it's an invitation for others to do the same. Is, yeah. that, is that what you're saying? It is. Uh, and so what are the implications of that idea for us as people and for us as religious practitioners? I think that's probably a whole podcast worth of potential discussion, but you know, we haven't touched on sports for 30 minutes or so. Going back to NBA Hall of Famer Charles Barkley, the round mound of rebound, Yet an altercation. The round mound of rebound? <laughs> uh, okay. He, uh, in, in the prime of his career, had an altercation. The details are unimportant, but it involved a brief barroom brawl. And he made a statement, I am not a role model. And it caused quite a stir at that point. And uh, I think some of us that read it appreciated what Charles was saying at one level saying, look, look to a responsible father who in all likelihood is not famous, but who is solid, who's close to you for your role model. Don't be looking at me. And you and I, I think, would nod and say, yeah, th that is a well-made point, Charles. But from another vantage, I would say in connection with the principle of lived invitation, you are a role model. 
Uh, Whether you want to be or not. Every person has a physical body and walks around and is, is seen by other sisters and brothers in the human family is a role model. We don't get to choose there. I'm not saying that they're an idyllic role model. I'm saying that they are a role model. They may be a positive one. They may be a lukewarm one. They may be a negative one, but they are a model. Their behavior models a certain pattern of action and choice that's visible and we we see that and interpret if we, if we were not impressed by what we saw why would corporations pay millions of dollars for a 30 second spot you know for an ad on super bowl halftime uh, we are impressed it doesn't mean that it's causal but we are influenced by what we see behaved and acted out in front of it so we get to make the choice the actions that we engage in are those issuing a benevolent, uplifting, positive invitation to those around us or not. It's interesting. You can even do a fairly benign check of this idea, like going to a cocktail party and not having a glass of wine in your hand. Have nothing. And just note how many people offer to get you a drink. There is an implicit invitation in not drinking at a cocktail party that makes those that are less comfortable. And I think it's- You speak from experience or are you just speaking hypothetically? Uh, I speak from both experience and hypothetical. As a Mormon uh, <laughs> teetotaler who, uh, who's spent most of your life living in places other than Utah, you've probably been in a lot of such gatherings where the fact that you were not drinking a cocktail, uh, you were drinking milk or water or whatever, that you found yourself being invited to partake of the bubbly frequently during that gathering. What, what, what was that like for you? Well, I, I'm sure that in some cases it was just, just hospitality and no offense was taken, of course, on my part. But the more basic premise, I think, still holds that we are implicitly and constantly aware of this idea that others' behavior is an invitation. Some relational scientists talk about what they would call the change first principle. That, for example, if a husband and wife, wife and husband are, are having conflict, that perhaps the best solution is not to sit down and yell it out or chat it out, but to simply make a conscious effort to behave more nobly, more patiently, more lovingly yourself first and see if that helps to correct whatever relational problem has taken place. I'm not demeaning communication. It's a very important conflict resolution tool. But again, if Emerson's right and our behavior speaks so loudly that we cannot hear the words, then uh, there, there is a power in behavior that supersedes that of words, at least in some circumstances. Okay. And how does that relate to religion and families and to the topic of today's discussion of the inner logics of religion? I think one of the ways in which it relates is that we have tried, and we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, to tap and to interview exemplars, 
individuals who, based on their behavior, have been identified by their respective corgi as folks that are not perfect, not unflawed, but seem to be doing, by appearances at least, a pretty good job of converting idyllic beliefs, sacred beliefs, into humane practices. Some might say they do a a good job of converting the first commandment of loving God into the second commandment of loving your neighbor, your closest neighbor, of course, being your spouse, your children. And on that note, uh, I think we're really fortunate in our approach to research. We've referenced this earlier. It's a great asset to be able to dig deeply with a qualitative approach, ask questions like we've been asking each other right now, instead of just having a bubble filled in, a box checked. In our approach, we get to delve deeper. Quantitative approaches, statistical approaches tend to slice off, delete the outliers, uh, folks that fall on the extremes of what uh, we might call the bell curve. The most and the least, whatever category you're looking at, tend to get dumped out of the research before it truly begins. With us, we work very differently. Friedland, um, and we cite him in our article repeatedly, one of the things that he says is that another approach would be to focus on those outliers or exemplars. He calls them the institutional elect. We would call them prototypical or ideal, or exemplary. And so with that kind of approach, we get to interview not just Jewish families or Muslim families or an array of Christian families, but one or two families from a synagogue, for example, whom the rabbi pointed to and said, Dave, Lauren, those are the kind of people that I believe can teach you the most about family and about faith. So we really had a wonderful opportunity to skim the cream. Yeah, and that was interesting because we've been understandably criticized by editors and reviewers of journals that we've submitted our work to who have said, hey, we social scientists, we like to study random, you know, large numbers, thousands of people randomly selected from a sample and do rigorous quantitative analyses of closed-ended questions so that we can have statistical significance determined by statistically accepted standards. So a 0.05 level of significance. We're 95% confident that there is a meaningful difference between the numbers from this group and the numbers from that group. And then we come along And we submit an article, a manuscript, that has very few, if any, numbers, some numbers in terms of how many times did this idea show up. But mostly our papers are filled with in-depth quotations from various folks who are sharing their lives, telling about how their own religious beliefs, their own religious practices, their peculiar religious ideas influence their particular marriage or their particular family. And we don't try to do statistical analyses to compare this Jewish person with that Muslim person or that Catholic person. We look for themes. We spend uh, a lot of hours with a lot of effort to do rigorous, careful, accurate, honest, 
coding of the interviews to look for commonalities across faiths. Like what, right. what are people saying about how their religion affects their relationships? And when you have this Jewish father talking about a particular Jewish belief or practice and how it affects his marriage, and then you multiply that across many people, many faiths, many families, we try to find those commonalities, those themes, and then we present those. And let's just say that most social scientists are more comfortable, they're more familiar with a quantitative statistical approach. They're less comfortable and, well, less familiar with, and therefore less comfortable with the sort of in-depth, unique focus on what people said that they do and why they do it. And so this goes along with Friedland's idea and others uh, that we talked about in this chapter, that if you really want to understand religion, you need to actually dive into specific religions. And then you need to dive into specific individuals within that religion, and then try to get them to talk about specific examples, experiences of how their specific religious belief. Because obviously not all Jewish people think about God or Judaism or Shabbat in the same way. There's tremendous variation. Likewise, not all Muslims or all Catholics or all Latter-day Saints think about their faith, interpret their faith, live out their faith in a similar way. So most social science tries to get at means, at averages, and tries to do generalization, tries to sort of characterize a group using numbers using statistics to say this group does this 70% of the time. The way we approach social science, uh, the way we approach our work and our scholarship is very different from that. It's to dive in and get as specific and particular and individual and unique as we possibly can. And then, and only then, to say, oh, is there some underlying principles or some underlying process that's kind of the same thing for this Jewish person talking about his marriage, that Muslim woman talking about her marriage, this other Catholic husband talking about his marriage? Are there any things that kind of cut across those? And in our view, that is how you get to the most interesting and most important most meaningful, most powerful ideas is by diving deep and getting as specific as possible. And in my case, of course, well, actually in both of our cases, we love to ask the question as we were doing interviews. You know, we, we would often start off with a question like, so what religious beliefs or practices do you find most important in your family? Or can you tell us about how you think your religious community influences your parenting. Something pretty general. And then they would say whatever they said, and then we would often follow up with a question, can you tell us a specific experience about when that happened? Or can you tell us about a time that kind of illustrates what you're talking about? And we found it really interesting that people would often, not always, but often they would be able to tell you about last week or last month or last year or right now how that belief is impacting their marriage and family in a very concrete, specific way. And it's much more time-consuming and much more difficult, much more complex to go into, you know, 
10,000 pages of interview transcript and try to draw from that, from all those thousands of specifics to then try to draw out some general principles, some general processes, some we don't really deal with laws, you know, per se, because we're more focused on processes and you know, kind of the whys and the hows. But our approach, and we're looking forward to, to getting into those details when we dive into the eight different religious ethnic communities that we have talked with people from. But again, at this podcast, we're focusing more on kind of ideas and theories and approaches to social science. And we're trying to position what we do in relation to what the broader social sciences do. Yeah, you're right. And it's been an adventure in some ways, large scale studies, uh, sometimes called nationally representative studies with 20,000 or 50,000 or 200,000 participants fixate and focus on central tendency data, averages, standard deviations and such. And those might be compared in a sense to a topographical map where you get to see a great deal of land, but you're seeing essentially the surface. You can see undulations and changes in, in topography and geography and fauna and flora, but you're just seeing what's above. And for us, this piece on inner logics is saying just that. We want to go deep. We want to go below the surface. And so in effect, what we've done with the help of Corgi is instead of looking at a wide array of topography, we've carefully marked an X in a place that is a promising place to drill a mine shaft. And the imam or rabbi or bishop or priest said, that's the family who's most likely to give you the gems, the ore, the precious stuff you're looking for. And like you said, we go to a specific family of a specific faith and a specific location. We ask them specific questions. We drill that mine shaft, and then we're looking for gems or ore in that mine shaft. And even when we find it, that's not enough. We cut it and polish it and hold it in different lights and do things that are very difficult to do, even for the most skilled topographers. And one of the ways in which we do that is by doing in-depth interviews. We mention and have mentioned in our previous work that a central opportunity of qualitative work, like the work that we do, is to strive to give a personal, specific voice to the people that are being studied. In our case, not just the individual, but the couple and often the family. And that when you give them a specific opportunity to share their own unique personal voice, that this empowers them to express what they believe, what they've experienced, how and why they behave the way that they do. And that ultimately this gives them also an opportunity to explain their path that they walk personally and relationally in their own terms, and to capture and convey their experiences in their own voice. And as you know, we ask them about experiences, about narratives, and often we'll push one step further and say, and what did that mean to you? What did it mean to, to you personally? What did it mean to your marriage when your mother passed and you prayed to God for help and God told you, I've given you the help that you need and you're holding on to him right now, and your arm was linked with your husband's, 
what did that mean to your relationship in the future? And then to have people allow us onto their personal sacred ground and explain why, not, not just what happened, but why it meant so much to them. Our aim has been in that effort to, as we've kind of uh, jokingly said, but, but with real intent, that our aim is to try to be a choir director for these wonderful voices that we've assembled and not to be diva soloists who talk over our participants or drown out their voices. Any thoughts to add there, Dave? Yeah, I'm going to do a little more quoting from the chapter. Greg pulled out a few examples from the interviews. He had had a chance to read drafts of the eight chapters on you know, the eight different uh, religious ethnic communities, and he pulled out a few interesting examples of people that illustrate the fact that when you're trying to be true to the idea of honoring people's lives where they are, not just looking to try to generalize, but trying to, in as specific a way as possible, understand individual lives. He quoted a couple of interesting comments made. He begins with two women from Black Christian families, so two wives, Jocelyn and Jalen, and different couples, who spoke about sort of their views about God. And he quotes Jocelyn, who talks about her confidence in prayer, even when things don't necessarily go the way that she would like. She says, quote, I don't get the results that I'm seeking just because I don't get the answer I want. That does not mean that God has not answered my prayer. And she makes it clear that getting her way, having God answer her prayer in exactly the way that she wants it answered is not the determining factor of whether she believes in God or not. It's not, you know, does God give me what I want right now? It's not about getting what she wants. It's about a relationship. And then he quotes uh, Jayla, another wife, who refers to her faith in God as a relationship more so than a religion. And then he quotes Friedland, a sociology theorist, who says that when you have a deep belief in something, God or some other entity or idea or ideal, it has sort of a substance. It's like a hidden substance. And so Friedland says this, quote, substances like hidden or transcendent gods are invoked by name as though they are eternal subjects who act in this world or as though they refer to knowable objects to which one has an instrumental or possessive relation, end of quote. And then Greg you know, points out that interpreting unanswered prayers as a sign of God's presence rather than his absence is a specific way that some people can make sense of the fact that nobody's prayers are always answered all the time. Every religion has ideas around why God answers prayers, how, when, why doesn't God answer all prayers. You know, every religion has theologies about unanswered prayers. But for this particular woman, Jocelyn, in her particular life, she shared the idea that it doesn't mean, when prayers aren't answered, it doesn't mean there's not a God. It means she's in a relationship with God, and it's the relationship that matters more. Jayla, who said that for her, it's more about a relationship with God than a religion. Well, that contrasts with, and that, that's, a, that's a typically Christian thing, a typically evangelical Christian thing to say, 
It's about the relationship, not about the religion, because that faith emphasizes a relationship with God. Well, a different approach to religion is found in Judaism, which often emphasizes behavior more than belief. It emphasizes actions, traditions, being observant, more so than it emphasizes certain beliefs. There's not nearly as much as a focus on what you believe in Judaism. It's more about what how you behave. Then Greg also found an interesting example in some Jewish folks that we talked with. Caleb, a Reformed Jew, and all these names are pseudonyms because we promised those that we interviewed privacy and confidentiality. And so he quotes uh, Caleb. Well, I should mention that he was referring to his uncle who had been murdered and how he found comfort in rituals after his uncle's death. So Caleb said, quote, It's not that I necessarily believe that there is a God listening to my prayers. It's more that the comfort of doing something that I've done all of my life has made it comfortable and given me the space to deal with those kinds of trying situations, end of quote. Caleb went on to talk about the burial rituals, the funeral rituals, sitting Shiva for seven days, you know, being at home with family and saying the Kaddish prayer, a prayer of devotion to God, even in the midst of loss and grief and mourning. And he mentioned how all of those actions, those behaviors, those Jewish practices helped him to cope. He didn't focus on my relationship with God is what helped me to cope. He focused on these traditional Jewish practices helped me to cope. So it's really important that we don't overgeneralize religion and say, oh, religion matters because it gives you a relationship with a personal God and that will help you cope. Well, certain religions and certain people's approach to their religion does provide that. True for Kayla, not for True Kayla. for Kayla, not for Caleb. For others, I remember well asking a Jewish uh, couple, a reformed Jewish couple, actually it was a conservative Jewish couple, the question that we asked to everyone, which was, can you talk about the ways that your relationship with God influences your relationship with each other in your marriage? And that was a question, frankly, that was asked from a Christian perspective. It was not a, a good ecumenical question. It had some assumptions and biases, as do any of our questions sure. that we ask. You know, sure. we have. So I asked this, this couple that question. And I'll never forget, they looked at each other, kind of furled the, their brows, and the husband said, wait a minute, could you ask that question again? Are there ways that your relationship with God influences your relationship with each other? And he said, um... Well, I think in the 22 years that we've been married, I think we've talked about God never. I don't think we've ever talked about God. And then his wife jumped in and said, oh, honey, remember that time in Iowa at breakfast? <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. One we've been time. married 22 years, happily married 22 years. We've talked about God exactly one time. It is totally irrelevant to our marriage. So very different. But then they went on to talk about all of the ways that Judaism, their practices, their traditions, their community, their rituals, how that's affected their marriage. But we didn't talk at all about how God affected marriage. So this idea is really powerful that the more you get into the specifics, the more you learn about religions, in this case, evangelical Christianity, and Judaism, and the more you learn about religion as a whole, that it's, it's a very diverse 
world, and it's important to not uh, rush to judgment and to not overgeneralize and to not stereotype based on one's own experience or one's limited knowledge. So interestingly, Greg, who's a sociologist, came at this in an interesting way where he found this quote from one of our, in this case, Orthodox Jewish husbands, Eli, who said, quote, the purpose of marriage is to increase the holiness of human relationships. We hope to have an emotional, intellectual, and spiritual dimension where we help each other try to ascend to a higher level or at least become more of what we should be. In other words, this person is saying, God has sanctified marriage, and we believe it helps to make us more holy. And then Greg brought up Annette Mahoney, our colleague and friend at Bowling Green, probably the leading psychologist of religion in the field today, who's written a lot about the idea of sanctification of marriage, and that some people sanctify their marriage by having ideas about marriage, the way that they think about marriage sanctifies marriage. And Greg's point is, well, do people sanctify marriage through their psychology, through through the way they think about marriage? Or in the case of Eli, does God sanctify marriage? And then we derive some benefit from the fact that God has sanctified marriage. So is sanctification a human activity or is it a divine activity? Is it horizontal or vertical? Exactly. And so what are your thoughts on that idea of who gets to sanctify marriage? Is it neither, either, or both? So I guess sanctification is a religious term. And what Annette Mahoney tried to do is say, even if you don't believe in God, even if you're not a religious person, the research shows that people actually do sanctify. They do attribute a sense of holiness to their marriage, even if they're not churchgoers or synagogue or mosque-goers. And then, uh, Greg is coming back and saying, well, actually, for many people, it doesn't matter whether they believe that marriage is sacred or not. It matters that they believe that God says that it is sacred, and that affects their marriage. Yeah, it's an interesting question and conundrum. I mean, the the simplistic response on the surface is, of course, a psychologist is going to say it matters what the individual thinks. And the sociologist is going to say it's about social construction. It's about uh, what society and systems frame, not that it thinks, but the way that it's set up. As family scholars, we would be inclined to say, well, it's a relational thing. If it's true for your wife, it's true for your husband, uh, and you both honor and sanctify it, then it's sanctified. But Greg, as illustrated by Eli's comment, is saying, wait a minute, if it is vertical, if it's top down, if God sanctifies it, that is something different. And it's interesting, too, that there is some evidence in our own data that when this is the way that people think, it seems to impact their perceptions and their behaviors even more deeply than the psychological, the social, or the relational by themselves. Something we hint at, and we borrow from our colleague, Ellen Levy, who herself is is Jewish, talking through this issue with Shabbat. You might go through all the motions, so to speak, of Shabbat, 
that there is something different, qualitatively different, when you do it because of a sense of what she calls ultimacy, that vertical, divine kind of connection that it seems to, to impact. I think we confess in the article that we're unaware of social science that definitively answers this question. And yet, at some level, each of us have to live out these kinds of answers in our personal and relational and, and familial lives. Okay, well, we're coming to the end of our time to chat. We're not all the way through talking about the ideas in this chapter. In fact, we're probably only about halfway through. So we may um, have another podcast where we get into some of the practical implications of this for counselors, for uh, religious leaders, or we may just call it good with what we've done and, and then dive into specific families next time. So any last words on inner logics of religion or religions? Yeah, it is an interesting reminder that from Friedland's perspective and Weber's, we all worship gods. Not just one, probably, but more than one. And it's interesting. Gods to, with small g. With a small g. Uh, yet, that depending on how profoundly we worship those small G gods can have profound influence on our lives. And it's certainly caused me to reflect yet again, what are the gods with a little G, the deities that command my time, energy, and attention, and how well does my beliefs or professed beliefs align with my behaviors? And I'm looking forward to, to delving deeply into perspectives on these issues from a diverse array of religions and races. Look forward to our next visit, where we'll dive into Asian Christian families. Doctors Dave Dollahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.